Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm with uh, Dr. Ryan Maves uh, finishing up his talk on clinical medicine topics, namely malaria and other tropical diseases. I think this is a really important topic in an area that, as soft medics, we uh, largely ignore. But nevertheless, Dr. Ryan Maves gives a great class on uh, tropical disease and uh, approaches to it in the austere environment. So let's shift over to a little bit about travel and tropical medicine, because uh, just as important as managing the septic patient it's, uh, is preventing a patient from becoming septic in the first place. So there are a few kind of basic rules of thumb on how to prevent infections when traveling in tropical and remote areas. So the first one is vaccination. Uh, you know, right now, as I say this, there is a large measles outbreak going on here at home in the United States, which is pretty appalling when you consider that we have an almost entirely effective vaccine that can, prov that can provide up to lifelong immunity. Uh, I cannot recommend vaccination strongly enough. Uh, the next step is washing your hands. And really just to kind of uh, paraphrase something my dad told me once, if you don't know what it is, don't put it in your mouth. Meaning making sure you know the source of your food, making sure your food is thoroughly cooked, uh, and avoiding consumption of unprepared water, meaning water that isn't bottled or hasn't been treated somehow. Next is taking your malarone or whatever type of malaria prophylaxis you've been prescribed. Uh, in AFRICOM, that it's generally malarone or atovaquone proguanol. Uh, next is insect repellents. Taking, uh, taking malarone is one part of preventing malaria. Uh, keeping bugs off of you is the second part. Next step is not messing with animals unnecessarily. Uh, there have been cases of rabies and one well-publicized rabies death in a U.S. Army soldier uh, following deployment to Afghanistan. And last but certainly not least is the practice of safer sex habits, meaning using condoms and other ways to protect against sexually transmitted infections, although that is not a typical issue that should come up on deployment. So there are a lot of great uh, pre-deployment resources that I really recommend everyone take a good look at prior to deploying to any country outside of the United States, but especially uh, to a tropical or resource-constrained area. So the State Department has a good website, uh, www.travel.state.gov, that has some general safety and security issues. And we'll have information about large-scale outbreaks, but generally would not have specific medical data. Um, Travax, uh, T-R-A-V-A-X, is a commercial website that can be accessed to the uh, AMED virtual library. Uh, and then there is an entity called the National Center for Medical Intelligence. A lot of the data they have there is classified, but can be obtained pre-deployment through your intelligence officer or often through your command's medical department. So thinking of big steps that we have to take to prevent illness due to tropical diseases on deployment. So the first one is keeping yourself from getting bitten. So in addition to malaria, there are going to be a number of other insect-borne infections. Dengue, Zika, chikungunya, yellow fever, although the last one has a very effective vaccine, the, that our only really effective preventative strategy is to prevent insect bites. So DEET, D-E-E-T, is the kind of gold standard uh, insect repellent. Uh, comes issued by the military in these little green 
tubes that you've probably all seen. Uh, that is actually really a gold standard insect repellent. Uh, but any DEET product between 20 to 40% concentration applied to your exposed skin and then used in conjunction with permethrin, which you would spray on your clothing or uniform prior to entering an area that has a lot of mosquitoes capable of transmitting disease, again, like malaria, dengue, Zika, chikungunya, and the like. Let's say we live in the real world, though, right? And let's say that some of these things don't go right. Let's say that you're taking care of someone who failed to use their DEET, who didn't use appropriate malaria prophylaxis, who wasn't taking proper dietary precautions. You know, What kinds of things can we do to, to assess that patient? What are the clues we have for figuring out what's wrong with these guys? All right, so I'm going to start off with a cautionary tale. So... This was several years ago, and it all begins with a 22-year-old uh, Marine Corps Lance Corporal. So he is deployed on a ship, and on the 29th of August, he presents to sick call on the ship with a one day of fevers and diarrhea. He's got watery stools, no blood, no abdominal pain. He's febrile to 101.4, blood pressure is normal, pulse is 72. He's diagnosed with a viral gastroenteritis, given acetaminophen, made sick in quarters for 24 hours. September 1st, he comes back, he feels better, he's afebrile. On the 2nd of September, his diarrhea returns accompanied by vomiting and a subjective feeling of lightheadedness. He has a temperature of 104.1. He's tachycardic to 120 to 130. He is diagnosed with a viral syndrome given intravenous fluids and started on ciprofloxacin, which for the record does not treat any known virus. So on the 4th of September, two days have gone by now. He is afebrile. His blood pressure is 94 over 63. His pulse is 109, right? So he is hypotensive. Uh, no evidence in reviewing the chart that he was ever seen by a physician. He was given an intramuscular dose of an antiemetic and told to come back if his symptoms worsen. On the 5th of September, falls out of his rack on the ship, hits his head while trying to get to the bathroom, brought to the medical department. Temperature is 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, pulse 111, blood pressure 90 over 39. He's admitted to the ship's medical hold for diarrhea and dehydration. He's got a hemoglobin of 10.1, platelets of 42,000, ALT elevated 114, a white count of 11.8. Uh, at this time, multiple other Marines start to present to the ship's medical department with diarrhea and fevers. They get a chest radiograph. It shows diffuse bilateral patchy airspace disease. Uh, on x-ray of his chest. So this is a story that all happened. This happened in real life in 2003 to a marine expeditionary unit that was deployed to Liberia. So our first patient uh, arrived at what was then the National Naval Medical Center, now is Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, on the 7th of September. Uh, he is diagnosed with cerebral malaria. He has a 17% parasitemia uh, with Plasmodium falciparum, which is the most dangerous and the most life-threatening form of malaria. He is intubated and on mechanical ventilation for nine days. At one point, uh, he has severe shock requiring up to three different vasopressors. He gets a secondary infection with Acinetobacter. At one point, a death-imminent board is dictated on his behalf. Now, thankfully, this young man survived along with the remainder of his cohort, but a total of 44 Marines on that operation were evacuated from Liberia with either confirmed or presumed falciparum malaria. Uh, in a subsequent outbreak investigation, uh, only 45% of them were using insect repellents, only 12% of them used permethrin-treated clothing, none of them used any bed netting, and only a minority of them were taking appropriate malaria chemoprophylaxis. So, you know, when you think about the impact of malaria, how rapidly it can 
devastate an operational unit, staying on top of prophylaxis is one of the most important things you can do. This is not, strictly speaking, a medical function. This is a line function. This is a thing that operational leadership, line commanders, NCOs, petty officers need to be the ones enforcing this, right? And setting the example by taking their own prophylaxis, by using DEET, by using permethrin properly. So just a quick review of some of the major tropical diseases it's important to be aware of. If you had to pick one, obviously, as this talk would indicate, malaria is the most important one. Malaria is widespread throughout sub-Saharan Africa, throughout much of Southern Asia, from parts of the isolated parts of Iraq, parts of Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, India, parts of China, large areas in Southeast Asia, Papua New Guinea, and then in the Western Hemisphere, much of Central America, isolated parts of Mexico, and then large parts of South America, principally the Amazon basin. Now, malaria, if you have to kind of organize what your risk of malaria is, you know, malaria is mainly a disease of rural areas. The mosquito, which is a member of the genus Anopheles, bites you at night. So malaria is a disease of rural areas, and the mosquito bites you at night. Now, dengue, on the other hand, which is a mosquito-borne virus, is spread by mosquito that lives in urban areas, and the mosquito bites you during the day. There is no effective vaccine available for dengue. Uh, and the, uh, the way that different types of dengue interact with one another, the expression goes that it's not the first time you get dengue that's going to kill you, it's the second time. That is, if you've had uh, prior exposure to one of the four types of dengue, you are most likely immune to that specific type of dengue uh, in the future, but you are at risk for more severe disease if you are infected with one of the other three types in the future. Um, the actual mortality of dengue is very low, uh, but patients suffer from fever, headache, occasionally hemorrhagic complications, severe muscle aches and pains. One of the old names for dengue is, quote, breakbone fever, unquote. And often people with dengue have a prolonged recovery over several weeks. Now, dengue is closely related to Zika virus, which I know has been in the news and people have some level of familiarity with it. Zika tends to produce a milder illness than dengue, but Zika is unique in that it can be transmitted sexually, often for months after exposure. Uh, I'm often asked by returning units if I can screen people for potential Zika exposure because of this risk of sexual transmission. Unfortunately, there is no good way to screen people for asymptomatic Zika exposure. There are tests for Zika, but they're not validated in the asymptomatic person. And no one really knows what to do with a positive or a negative test in that setting. So we don't routinely offer that. I know that's very frustrating for those people who I have to break that news to because they have spouses, they have partners, uh, and they're worried about their family members and their friends. And that's completely understandable. Hopefully at some point in the future, we will have a better screening technique or possibly an effective vaccine that will eliminate this consideration. But today, all we really have are safer sex practices, meaning largely condom use or abstinence. Um, a third virus, chikungunya, is spread by the same virus as dengue and Zika. Chikungunya is not related to the other two. It produces a similar clinical syndrome of fever, headache, rash. Uh, one useful thing to know about chikungunya is that it often produces uh, an arthritis that really closely resembles rheumatoid arthritis and can linger for months to years after exposure. Um, 
For none of those three, is there an effective vaccine available today? Uh, the only real preventative strategy is to avoid getting bitten. Other important diseases of note for the deployer uh, include something called meningococcus or Neisseria meningitidis. Uh, this is present in the United States and uh, pretty much all of us have been vaccinated against it when we were entering initial military training. Uh, it's a bacterial infection that causes an invasive neurologic disease, severe meningitis in healthy people. And there are outbreaks periodically on college campuses. Um, there have been outbreaks among uh, HIV positive uh, mainly uh, gay men in the United States, and it is endemic to a large section of Africa, really going from uh, kind of around Guinea and West Africa in a band called the meningitis belt across into Ethiopia and near the Horn of Africa. Um, we do have an effective vaccine for it. It doesn't eliminate the risk, but it does reduce the risk, and that is a recommended or for the military required vaccine for deployers to Africa. Yellow fever uh, is also a cousin of dengue and Zika, uh, produces a much more severe disease uh, that uh, has several manifestations, one of the most important ones being jaundice, along with hemorrhagic manifestations, neurologic, cardiac, and renal manifestations as well. Uh, yellow fever occurs in South America and in Africa. It does not occur in Asia. Uh, which is sort of interesting because there are competent vectors for yellow fever in Asia, and it's not clear why it really hasn't moved over there. The important thing about yellow fever is that there is an effective vaccine. Uh, for some countries, documentation of vaccination is necessary to enter. Uh, whenever I travel to West Africa, I have to show my vaccine card. Uh, fun fact, uh, yellow fever is the reason that your vaccine card is yellow. The Vaccine historically has been recommended to receive a booster every 10 years. It seems that yellow fever vaccination is probably sufficient to give you lifelong immunity after a single dose. Um, there may be regulatory issues that require you to get an additional vaccine uh, every 10 years. Uh, some West African countries are still requesting or requiring that uh, to get a visa to enter. So just be aware that that is a potential issue, especially because right now there is a yellow fever vaccine shortage, although the military can generally acquire it. So now with all of that, how do we assess the ill returning traveler or the ill returning deployer? Um, when a lot of people think about infectious diseases, what they think of are lists and names of microorganisms and lists and names of antibiotics, right? And I want to tell you that Really, the clinical care of patients with infections comes down to two things, exposures and syndromes, or demographics and syndromes. By demographics and exposures, I mean, who are you? Who is this patient? Is this a 25-year-old you know, athlete, or is this a 75-year-old recovering from leukemia? And in terms of exposures, where have you been? Have you left the United States? Where did you go? Were you in an urban area or were you in a rural area? Did you swim in water? Were you around livestock? Uh, were you bitten by a bunch of insects? You know, what's the, what's the situation that you put yourself into prior to falling ill? And then syndromes. Do you have fever and headache? Do you have a rash? Do you have a cough? Are you having dysentery with bloody diarrhea? What's the thing that's bothering you? Those two things, exposures, and syndromes are really what lead you to diagnosis, especially in a deployed setting where, again, your diagnostics are going to be very limited. Um, so when I talk to ill-returning travelers, I'll look, first of all, for is there some sort of localizing thing? Is there a localizing lesion that brought them to medical care? Do they have 
you know, redness, pain, and swelling on an extremity that could suggest a small abscess, an MRSA abscess, a cellulitis. Were they bitten by something, by an insect, by an animal, by a human? Is there some evidence of trauma? Do they have something that localizes to another organ system, like their gastrointestinal tract or their genitourinary tract or their central nervous system? And then thinking about generalized and systemic symptoms. Do they have fever? Do they have chills? Do they have rigors? Do they have pain in their muscles and joints? Are they simply tired? Or do they feel well and simply have a fever that's coming and going? All of those things are going to point us in different directions. Um, there are some key elements in this history you need to know about. You want a detailed chronology of their illness. You want to know when they were sick. And you also don't want to know where were they before they got sick and when did they leave. Different infections have different incubation periods. So malaria can present some cases up to a year or more after leaving from a malarious area. Whereas dengue's incubation period is unlikely to be much more than two weeks. If someone presents with a fever three to four to five weeks after leaving a dengue endemic country, dengue is extremely unlikely in that case. Um, you know, when we're talking to people about exposures, it's good to get an idea of, have they been around animals? Have they been around insects? Have they been in rural or urban areas? Um, and what general kinds of activities were they doing? We also want to know about what medications they're using. Specifically, were they taking any malaria prophylaxis? And were they taking it reliably? Did they stop it early when they came home? Uh, most malaria preventative medications you need to have taken for at minimum seven days in the case of malarone or up to 28 days in the case of doxycycline after you leave the country. It's, it's worth considering also that the quote regular unquote diseases also happen in tropical areas. You know, influenza is still common in returning travelers. Travelers diarrhea, things like salmonella are still common in returning travelers. So although we're going to focus a lot on these infectious disease emergencies that are can't miss diagnoses, it's important to remember that people get regular stuff too, right? I've traveled to Africa several times and I've never had malaria, but I have had the flu a number of times, for example. So if you have to think about what the big infectious disease emergencies are, the big two, the big two that you can't afford to miss are going to be malaria and then the viral hem hemorrhagic fevers. Malaria is the most important one viral hemorrhagic fevers are equally important from a public health standpoint, but thankfully much more unusual in returning travelers. Now, when, I, when we talk about infectious disease emergencies, in addition to malaria and viral hemorrhagic fevers, I had mentioned acute bacterial meningitis, uh, necrotizing soft tissue infections, including toxic shock syndrome. I had mentioned sepsis in general, uh, the rickettsial diseases, including Rocky Mountain spotted fever, cholera, very rare in travelers, but does occasionally occur. Those are the big ones we can't afford to miss. Um, when I talk about these, I'm going to make certain assumptions about your clinical practice. One is that you're going to know your patient's travel history because you're deploying with your unit. Two is that you're going to know their vaccination history because you are in some way responsible for it. Third is going to be activity-based risk. This is going to be a little more of an unknown. Uh, you can't watch everyone at all times, but hopefully you have a good enough relationship with the guys you're deploying with that you can get a good history and one that's based on trust. Uh, vector exposure and the use of personal protective equipment, hopefully these should be standardized and hopefully the folks you're deploying with are using those things appropriately. Freshwater exposure, barefoot exposure, sexual exposure, and adherence to antimalarial prophylaxis. Those are all the kinds of things that you'll need to know to bring your diagnosis together.
Probably the most important thing in the deployed setting, though, is any febrile patient in a malarious area has malaria until you prove that they don't. Right? So we talked a bit about dengue, Zika, chikungunya, some of these other entities. Uh, Dengue is rough, right? And when people have dengue, they are sick and they feel miserable. But there isn't a drug, right? There's no specific therapy to do other than supportive care, making sure they have adequate volume resuscitation, either with oral fluids or intravenous, if that's all they can tolerate, making sure that there are no hemorrhagic complications, uh, avoiding drugs like NSAIDs and using mainly acetaminophen for analgesia and fever control. Uh, but a delayed diagnosis of dengue is unlikely to harm your patient. A delayed diagnosis of malaria has the potential to kill a patient. So always being vigilant for that possibility. Uh, so how do we you know, work up the febrile traveler? You know, so this is going to depend a lot on what kind of resources you have with you. Assuming you have fairly basic resources, things I would recommend, if you can get them, a complete blood count with differential and a platelet estimate, uh, liver function tests on a standard chemistry panel, if that's available. If you can get blood cultures, great, get blood cultures. If you can get a urinalysis and a chest x-ray, great, get those things too. Uh, thick and thin smears for malaria, that is looking at slides of blood under a microscope for malaria parasites, is considered the gold standard of diagnosis historically. Uh, there are other more modern tests used uh, that are more sensitive and more specific. Those are not going to be available to you on deployment. And the truth is, is that microscopy, looking at malaria smears under a microscope, is an extremely operator-dependent task. You need an experienced microscopist who does this on a regular basis. I'm an infectious disease doctor. I probably think more about malaria than the average person does, uh, at least in the United States. I do not trust my own ability to read malaria slide. If I see something, great. If I don't see something, it doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, to fill this gap, uh, there have been a number of what we call rapid diagnostic tests, or RDTs, uh, developed over the last few years. The main one we have available to us in the United States and in the military uh, is uh, made by a company called Binax, B-I-N-A-X. Uh, the test is called the Binax Now Malaria Test. And they come in these cards that you uh, take a drop of the patient's blood, apply the blood to the card, add a little reagent that comes in a little dropper, kind of like a looking like a contact lens solution. Requires minimal training to use. There's a nice little uh, explanation that comes with the kits on how to do it. These are routinely issued to deploying medics. They're pretty robust in the environment uh, and they are very helpful for screening for malaria. It's important to realize that, the, that these are not perfectly sensitive and specific. They're more likely to be positive at higher levels of parasitemia, meaning more likely to be positive in a sicker patient. Uh, the patient with a relatively low amount of circulating malaria parasite, you may get false negative tests. So if you have a high index of suspicion, check more than once, check every several hours, and don't be afraid to just treat empirically in the patient who you strongly suspect have malaria, even with a negative Binax test. So lastly, it's good to consider what our treatment options for malaria on deployment are. I would say there's 
two major ones that you should have readily available or at least know how to get a hold of. So malarone, again, a drug we often use for prophylaxis, can be an effective treatment drug. Uh, the treatment dose of malarone is four tablets once a day for a total of three days. Now, if someone is on malarone for prophylaxis, uh, treatment dose malarone may be less effective in that patient. If that's the only antimalarial drug you have, then that is acceptable, but it's not my first choice. For the treatment of malaria on deployment, uh, the treatment of choice for severe malaria uh, worldwide, including the United States, is a uh, drug called artesanate. Uh, you are almost certainly not going to have that with you on deployment. Actually, in the United States, we have to contact the CDC to get a hold of it. Uh, it's not stocked in hospital pharmacies and, uh, and in fact, is not FDA approved, although you can get it pretty readily from the Centers for Disease Control, and that is considered the standard of care for severe malaria. There is a similar oral drug to artesanate, uh, artemether lumefantrine, which is marketed as coartem, C-O-A-R-T-E-M. That is FDA approved, and that is available for deployment, and I would say that is the oral antimalarial therapy of choice. And although uh, an intravenous drug for severe malaria is often preferred. If you have a functioning gut and you can swallow coartem tablets, that is better than nothing, and in many cases, or probably the majority of cases, is sufficient. So if your unit is deploying with malarone as malaria prophylaxis, I would bring coartem with you for malaria therapy. If your unit is deploying with doxycycline as prophylaxis, I would still take coartem as therapy, but malarone is, an, is a reasonable second choice if that's what you have available. You know, the only real sin here uh, for a deploying unit with a suspicion of malaria is to not suspect malaria, and if you suspect malaria, not to work it up, not to monitor, and if you're really worried, not to treat. Uh, it is important to recognize that patients with severe malaria uh, can get secondary bacterial infections. Uh, the ertapenem that I mentioned before uh, is an effective treatment for that, uh, for the majority of these secondary bacterial infections in the setting of malaria. Uh, the specific drugs we use uh, when available tend to be things more like ceftriaxone, um, which you may also have with you. Uh, I will often combine that with doxycycline when I'm working up a seriously sick returning traveler. Uh, there's an old kind of ID doc expression that no one dies without doxycycline. So uh, I'll often include that in my empiric regimen, and that's not unreasonable for you to do in the absence of other diagnostics. So, you know, in, infections are obviously a major cause of morbidity and mortality on deployment, as well as a cause of disrupted training, disrupted operation time, uh, disrupted unit effectiveness. So in the prolonged field care setting, if we can find ways to improve the care of both sepsis, tropical disease, and other endemic employment-related infections, that's really going to be the thing that's going to help us maximize our kind of collective effectiveness. Uh, we don't have a lot of data for some of these interventions. There's a lot of data for malaria. Uh, the management of sepsis in the deployed setting is actually a thing where we're we're kind of the ones figuring out how to do a lot of this for the first time. But thankfully, we're not doing it in a complete vacuum. There actually are a lot of lessons from folks working in developing countries in resource-constrained settings. We can take those lessons and apply them to our practice. And uh, I think we have a lot to learn from 
uh, people working in sub-Saharan Africa, people working in Southeast Asia and parts of Latin America uh, that will actually help us improve our own care of uh, folks in deployed settings. So again, my name is Captain Ryan Maves. It's been a real pleasure talking to you all today. Uh, I can be reached uh, via global at ryan.c.maves.mil at mail.mil. And uh, thank you again for the opportunity to talk to you today. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.